Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. What's going on? Hope classes are going well. Hope you're taking advantage of being on campus to attend free lectures. And hope you're also taking the advice of so many of the people I've interviewed on Time for Coffee. The advice is to get involved in different extracurricular activities that are available to you at school and to attend those free lectures and free events because you never know what you're going to get exposed to that will inspire you in terms of what you might want to do after you graduate. In fact, my next guest has some great advice that I think you're going to appreciate. But before I introduce him, if you haven't already signed up for the Java Junkies Journal, that's the weekly newsletter that we send out bright and early Monday mornings to give you a sneak peek at the episodes we're dropping every day that week, please head on over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. So this next episode falls into the category of an oldie but a goodie. It's one of the dozen or so early episodes I recorded back in the spring while I was still trying to figure out a good formula for T4C interviews. And if you're a regular junkie, you'll pick up on the fact that this is more of a freewheeling interview. It doesn't fall into more of the pattern of some of the questions that I've grown accustomed to asking. And that's why I'm pre-recording the introduction of my guest rather than saying hi to them and segueing directly into our interview. In fact, I'm recording this introduction months and months after I actually did the interview. Thanks so much for your understanding. We're still in the startup phase of Time for Coffee and we're learning as we go along. So grab your mug and take a chug because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest, Joe Bubman, works at the Global Humanitarian and Development Organization, Mercy Corps, where he is the technical lead on integrating approaches in complex crises. We're going to get into why he has that title. In this episode, Joe talks about his career as an expert in the interest-based negotiations and conflict resolution and management space and how he leveraged every job and internship he ever had into stepping stones to where he is today at one of the world's most respected international development organizations. I'm going to try to explain this in the in the most straightforward way without any jargon. As, as you know, Andrea, Mercy Corps provides humanitarian assistance to people affected by disaster and crisis. So we in, in Syria, in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, in Iraq and around the world, when disaster strikes, we are helping people meet their basic needs. So that could be with water, sanitation, hygiene assistance. It might be with food. It might be with cash so that people can have the dignity of choice and buy what they need most. And my position is thinking through and helping our teams as we are providing that assistance. Is there a way we can also contribute to peaceful outcomes? Can we bring groups together to improve relationships and build social cohesion? Are there ways that we can begin to address some of the underlying dynamics that are contributing to, in the case of Syria and South Sudan, the crisis itself? So it's integrating some of our technical approaches like improving governance, building peace, 
providing opportunities for new livelihoods, integrating those technical approaches into the way we deliver our humanitarian assistance. So what on a day-to-day basis are you doing? Well, I won't use the cliche of saying no, (laughs) there is no typical day. But lately, much of my work has been travel to the field. So I'll, I'll share one thing, one recent trip prior to Amman and then and then my trip next week. So in Kenya right now, there is a challenge at the national level where the up until recently, the opposition candidate, the, the leader of the opposition party, rather, did not accept the outcome of last year's presidential election. There were there were two elections. There was an election that occurred initially, and then the Supreme Court invalidated the results, and then there was a repeat of it. Um, the incumbent party won. The opposition party refused to accept the outcome, and it's created a bit of a crisis in, in the country, and it has exacerbated some of the underlying tensions in the country around different ethnic communities and around political power um, and around governance. And I spent about nine or 10 days in Nairobi um, supporting the efforts of Kenyan civil society, business and religious leaders to lead a national dialogue process that would and discuss how to move the country forward, but also oversee an inclusive process that would engage young people, older people, men, women, marginalized communities across the country um, including in in geographic areas that are more remote and don't get as much attention, engage them in a discussion over many months that would lead to a set of recommendations for Parliament to implement that would address some of the dynamics that had that had contributed to this crisis. And so, I was working with a number of Western governments and embassies in Nairobi and those Kenyan business, civil society, and religious leaders to figure out how can we design a process um, that would be inclusive and that could sort of move the the country forward. And the process would be like for what? So the process would be a national dialogue to develop recommendations to address the constitutional crisis, to address electoral reforms, to address issues that were leading to conflict between different ethnic communities, um, including abuses by uh, the police, uh, human rights abuses of, of certain ethnic uh, communities. I'm flying to Uganda on Sunday, and next week I will be conducting a workshop on negotiating for humanitarian access, which I'll explain in a second, for Mercy Corps security point people. And so when Mercy Corps is providing assistance to vulnerable populations in countries like Syria, in Iraq, in Mali, in Democratic Republic of the Congo, our ability to access those populations is often restricted. And it's restricted either by armed groups that say, no, you can't cross this road or you can't enter this territory unless you give us 20% of what you're supplying because our troops are hungry too, they might say. And this is a standard tax that you have to pay, which would be a diversion of our humanitarian assistance and a violation um, of our agreements with our donors. Or um, the local government might say, no, you can't provide cash assistance to 90% of, or you can't have 90% of your cash assistance go to internally displaced persons, even though you say those are the most vulnerable based on your socioeconomic 
vulnerability criteria, you have to give at least 50% to the residents of our community, recognizing that those are the people who vote and those are the people whose approval they need to stay in power. And so how can we negotiate with government in a way that meets their interests of looking good and helping their community and that meets our interests of adhering to humanitarian principles like operational independence and neutrality? So how do you do that? I mean, with that example that you just gave, where they, the government says, or the people in authority say, no, you can't give 90% to the most vulnerable. You have to give 50% to this community that, oh, by the way, happens to support us. Sure. Mercy Corps makes use of a framework for negotiation that was initially developed at the Harvard Negotiation Project. Um, in 1979, which, are the, which was a think tank set up at the Harvard Law School. Uh, those ideas were formulated in the book Getting to Yes, first published in 1981. And then the Harvard Negotiation Project spun out into the Conflict Management Group, which Mercy Corps merged with in, in 2004. And some of the key ideas that came out of that work and that research were understanding what are the underlying interests of the other party. And you're more likely to be successful in negotiation if you can at least help the other party be successful as well. And so in this case, part of it is understanding if this is a a ministry of displacement and migration, for example, what are they really after? 50% is the demand that they're making. It's the position, which is what a tactic that people often resort to in in negotiation. Um, What's driving that demand? Is it sort of as I was alluding to, is it a a desire to look good? Is it a a desire to win the approval of their constituents? Um, is it a desire to try to make sure that Mercy Corps as, as an international non-governmental organization knows its place and doesn't sort of overstep our bounds? So the first step is asking a bunch of questions to understand why they're insisting on 50% before deciding what the answer might be. Why is it important to you, uh, Minister, for us to allocate 50% of our cash distribution to host community residents as opposed to those who are most vulnerable? I might also then, as a negotiator, share my interests or underlying motivation. So it's important to us, Minister, that um, we are serving those who are most vulnerable. In fact, that's the mission of our agency. Um, It's also important to us that we adhere to or ensure our operational independence. In other words, that we make decisions based on our own assessments of who would benefit most from our assistance, not based on what any governing authorities dictate. So that would be one example. Another key principle of this collaborative negotiation framework is legitimacy. So what is fair in negotiation? So we might say, where does 50% come from? We've worked in another governorate in Iraq or wherever we're operating where our cash distribution went 90% to IDPs and 10% to host community. Why would it be different here? So providing a standard and then being open to persuasion um, might be a way that you can move the conversation forward, not in a confrontational way, but in a way that supports the arguments you're making, um, but leaves room for discussion. How has this line of work affected the way that you interact with people outside of the project that you're working on? I live and breathe this stuff every day. It, it It's sort of almost everything I do, I view through this prism of interest-based negotiation. And my exposure to it preceded my Mercy Corps role. Um, it, it really goes back to 
a course I took in graduate school um, at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies on dispute settlement methods and reading the books Beyond Machiavelli and Difficult Conversations. And even before that, attending the symposium in The Hague on international mediation and conflict resolution right after graduating from college. It definitely impacts the way I talk with other people in my personal life, trying to ask a lot of open-ended questions and understand others' perspectives and trying to understand before seeking to be understood and to find ways that I can meet others' interests and address their concerns in a way that also helps me get what I want and recognizing that the world is not zero-sum, largely because we in our negotiations and in our conflict resolution efforts can always be worse off We have wars, um, we have litigation, um, where both parties are worse off. And occasionally, we can be much better off and we can expand the pie and we can both be successful. And having that mindset is really important because it leads you to do the sorts of things that create opportunity in negotiation and create opportunity in peace building. So you mentioned that this job, you're spending an awful lot of time on the road. In your prior job, and we'll get to Super Decathlon for One America in, in a moment, but as senior peace building advisor uh, at Mercy Corps, the summary on uh, LinkedIn says that you support the design and implementation of Mercy Corps peace and conflict programs in countries such as, and then you have a, a list of countries there. Can you talk about maybe, I, I'm sure there's an awful lot of overlap between what you're doing now. But what does a peace building advisor do at Mercy Corps? Like kind of the granular sure. in a way that might be distinct from what you're doing now. So that work was more targeted to specific programs that Mercy Corps country teams are designing and implementing. And so I would divide the work into three categories. One was working with country teams to design new programs. So in practical terms, that means responding to funding opportunities from our donors, often Western government agencies, State Department, USAID, Canadian government, UK Department for International uh, Development, and writing those proposals, working with our teams to analyze the context, think about what our country team is best positioned to do, think about which organizations we're going to partner with, and think about what is the causal logic of what we are proposing? How would that address real needs in the communities where we're working, whether that's uh, needs around managing conflict, whether that's needs around building relationships, maybe it's creating economic opportunities, maybe it's improving governance, maybe it's Um, addressing an ecological challenge around management of land or water, for example, and then writing the proposal or or reviewing drafts of the proposal written by our country team and providing feedback. And so that program design is, is one key category. Second is supporting implementation of those projects. And so that could mean helping launch the project by orienting some of our team and our local partners to our core methodology. So, Andrea, you and I talked a few minutes ago about our interest-based negotiation and mediation. So it might be running a workshop on that content. It might also be supporting the development of a baseline survey 
So baseline survey would be interviewing and collecting data from the community where we're working to understand the current state at the time of, of project start, um, the current state of, say, relationships between groups, levels of trust, confidence in local government to deliver basic services, so that over the course of the project, whether it's 18 months or three years or five years, we can determine when we collect that data along the way, what progress we're making or not making, what impact we're having or not having. Um, Similarly, we might during that project implementation also support conduct of a a midterm evaluation or, or a final evaluation. And then the third area of support was around thought leadership and representation. And by thought leadership, that is trying to develop and disseminate research that is evidence-based and that can influence key stakeholders and policymakers to invest in the sort of work that we think is most valuable um, based on the research that we are developing. And then the representation is, well, based on the word, representing Mercy Corps in public fora and sharing some of that research, talking about our programs, talking about our, our approaches, and demonstrating that Mercy Corps is a is not only a thought leader, but an innovative agency that is unique in that we are a multi-mandate humanitarian relief agency that also does longer-term development and peace-building work. Joe, what do you think the skills are that are most important in doing this job well? How important is that graduate degree that you would get from a place like SICE or another in which you're really digging into the experts in the field, getting more book learning. You've mentioned now writing a -hmm. couple of times, writing proposals, also public speaking, I would Mm -hmm. have to imagine, Mm -hmm. is is also an important skill set if you're going to be interfacing with, with groups of people and running trainings and whatnot. But what would you say are some of the more important ones? I think that skills, first of all, is probably the most important thing when I think about career development. In other words, more important than individual choices that people make about sort of this position or that position or this graduate school or that graduate school. Because I think that it's skills that enable you to be successful in any role. Um, in my in my work, I mean, you hit on them, Andrea. I think that writing is very important. Clarity of expression, writing so that donors can understand what it is we are proposing, writing so that our country teams can understand how to implement a certain peace building approach. I also think that public speaking is is incredibly important. The success of our negotiation workshops where you're communicating a tool or a concept or a framework, it depends on your ability to connect with participants. And so if they are either bored or confused or not interested, you're not going to have a successful workshop. I think the skill of organization is also critically important. Mercy Corps and and the peace building work is not unique in that we are doing lots of different things at the same time. We are responding to funding opportunities. We are conducting evaluations. We are developing new tools and approaches. 
We are speaking at events and there's a lot going on. And I think that there are more pressures on us in sort of the workforce today um, and in our personal lives and more demands on our time than ever before and more interruptions given all the technology and the ability to prioritize what you're doing and be efficient in how you use your time is is critical. And I think if you if you're not able to do that, then I think it's really hard to be successful. And where do you think you really honed these skills? That's a hard question to answer. I think that I think we all have sort of more natural strengths and and there are other things that we're naturally less good at. Um, And there are lots of things that I'm less good at. I think sort of focus and organization is something that I tend to be good at. And it's something that I think I've grown up with. I think if I weren't, then I think I would need to really devote a considerable amount of time to. So public speaking, for example, I don't think I'm sort of a natural public speaker. Until I was forced to do so, I never felt comfortable speaking in front of large groups. So I can talk about how how I honed that skill. With the organization... I think that is just kind of who I am. I've always been very task-oriented. And I think if I weren't, it would really need to be something that I focused on because, again, I think it's essential for any work in, in today's world. So we'll get to the public speaking a little bit a little bit later. But before we move on, I would love for you to tell us about Super Decathlon One America. So Super Decathlon for One America is an organization that builds relationships between rural and urban communities through fun, friendly team competition and joint projects. It's a response to the significant divisions that we see in our country right now. Um, There are lots of divisions. There are divisions between more educated and less educated people. There are divisions between races. There are divisions between political parties. And one of the divisions that I think cuts across a lot of those other differences is this division between rural and urban communities. It also has felt like there hasn't really been an effort to bridge those divides. And I think the the impact of or the result of, of not doing much to bridge those divides is that we are less likely to listen to the perspectives of people from the other community and less likely to understand their views, less likely to engage and more likely to dismiss their views and instead surround ourselves with people who think the same way. I think that we're spending too much time online with people who are similar to us and not enough time in person with people who are different from us. And so Super Decathlon is an effort to build relationships through shared experience. And so a a Super Decathlon is a one-day event in a rural community where teams of four people, two from the urban community and two from the rural community, play a bunch of sports and engage in other activities. So things like kickball, dodgeball, blindfolded dessert tasting, karaoke, trivia, etc. And we did our first Super Decathlon in Warsaw, Virginia in November. It's a town of about a thousand people where 25% of the population is incarcerated. And we partnered with the Haven Shelter, which provides services to homeless people and works to prevent domestic violence and sexual assault. And we had about 26 people participate in this day of fun, friendly team competition. We raised $700 for The Haven. And we're now partnering with the Waynesboro, Pennsylvania New Hope Shelter, which provides free lodging and housing for women, men, and children. And separately from that one-day event, 
We're also in the process of designing these six-month projects, so community projects, which is similar to the Mercy Corps sort of international peacebuilding model, where you're bringing together these communities in service of a shared goal. So in the case of Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, and D.C., we are planning a project to clean up the Appalachian Trail. So the Appalachian Trail, I mean, it's amazing how long it is. Uh, It cuts across, I think, from Georgia to Maine. And there's a trailhead just on the outskirts of Waynesboro and sort of a couple hours west of D.C., maybe less. um, You can pick up the trail. And so the idea is you have this four-person team of folks from Waynesboro, folks from D.C. participating in the Super Decathlon who are also maybe on three to six days over a six-month period doing some cleanup on the trail, either in Pennsylvania or Maryland or Virginia. And anyone in the broader community is invited to join. There are lots of organizations that do Appalachian Trail cleanup, so we would be supporting their efforts rather than duplicating them. But we're bringing these communities together in service of that. Similarly, um, with the the Haven Shelter in Warsaw, Virginia, um, the project we're designing there is to take young people who have been traumatized by homelessness or sexual assault or domestic violence and engage them in sports. Do a few of those days in the community of the Northern Neck um, and then later bring them to D.C. um, and potentially also connect them with young people in a D.C. shelter who have been traumatized in similar ways um, and have some fun-friendly team competition and sports and also build life skills through communication and increased confidence through that engagement. Are there potential job opportunities? Hopefully not at the, at the very moment, though we are expecting our first grant from a family foundation. So we're very excited about that. And that would support both of those projects. And hopefully with increased revenue, we'd be able to hire some staff. And, and yeah, and if anyone is interested in learning more about the Super Decathlon, they can certainly contact me. They can do that through the superdecathlon.org website. Okay, let's turn the clock back by a few years here and go back to your days at Northwestern University. You were a political science and history major. Did you know what you were going to do with that, with those degrees? This was a double major? It was a double major. I didn't know what I was going to do with the degrees. Actually, I applied to the journalism school and I was accepted. And journalism, Northwestern has a highly regarded journalism school called Medill. I love to write and I thought that I wanted to be a journalist. And I took a couple courses my freshman year, which I liked, but I kind of decided that I just didn't want to be a reporter. I didn't want to sort of cover... I didn't want to cover events and and cover news that other people were be making. Apart from yeah, I wanted to sort of just be more involved in whatever was going on. And so I decided that since I wasn't going to be a journalist, I should probably not be a journalism major. Um, and so I decided to be a political science and history major, even though I wasn't necessarily going to be a political scientist or historian. But I didn't know what I was going to be. But I but I didn't know what I wanted to do. But at least I figured. Well, at least I'm double majoring. Maybe that would create more options. And I really enjoyed the the content of those courses. And so I, I decided to do that. And I spent my sophomore, junior and senior years taking a significant number of courses in those two subject areas. And so May of 2003 approaches. And did you know what you were going to do next? I didn't. And... I think I saw, I almost wanted to postpone making that decision because 
I, w- I wasn't sure. And there were no kind of clear opportunities that had emerged. And so I was weighing a couple opportunities for things I could do that summer. One was a fellowship around Auschwitz in Poland um, that was sort of supporting Holocaust education. And the second was this opportunity to participate in a symposium at The Hague on international conflict resolution and mediation. And that to me felt more forward looking. I had done a lot of kind of Holocaust awareness during my time at Northwestern and led a student group um, focused on that. And now I felt like this was an opportunity to take some of the lessons potentially from the Holocaust, work to prevent atrocities and genocide and violent conflict in the future. So I, I felt like that two month symposium would would potentially increase my awareness of different opportunities and maybe give me some some more ideas and, and also just be a great experience. And is that where you had your I've been bitten by the bug. It certainly increased my interest in in doing conflict resolution as a career. So you came back and you went to work as a regional press assistant, IT support, field staff for John Kerry for president. And even before then, the sort of executive director of that organization offered me a position with his organization. So when I returned to D.C., where... That so the organization running that symposium in the Hague was based in DC, and and that was another thing. The participating in this symposium gave me an opportunity to build relationships. That relationship led to my first job, and it was a bit of an unorthodox job because it was a four-person nonprofit, and he had an unconventional way of of running his organization. And after a few weeks of of not having received my first paycheck, I said, you know, so when when do I get when do I get paid? And he said, well, come with me. And so he took me to the ATM and he withdrew cash and handed me, and that was my first paycheck. So that was a little odd. On the other hand, he was a political junkie himself and supported my interest in the 2004 presidential campaign and election. And so when I suggested that I might do an internship at the John Kerry for President campaign. He supported that as long as I could continue working at the nonprofit. And that internship at the Kerry campaign led to the position you were describing of IT support. The initial opportunity was as a field staffer going to Manchester New Hampshire in early January of 2004, about three weeks before the New Hampshire primary, which, as you know, is is a critical milestone in the in the primary process. And when John Kerry pulled out an unexpected victory in New Hampshire, I then went to three other states as a field staffer. So that was essentially getting out the vote, knocking on doors, organizing rallies, doing visibility, which is essentially standing on a street corner, holding up signs. But I then went on to Kansas City, uh, Madison, Boise, not necessarily in that order, over the next, say, six weeks or so. And then after it seemed like the, the nomination was locked up, I then returned to D.C. and I was offered this opportunity to join the IT team, which was ironic because in college I was known for, I was known as someone who couldn't even, could barely turn on their computer themselves and was infected with all sorts of viruses because of my mismanagement of, of my computer um, and who needed his, his cousin to help him, yeah, figure out how to set up his computer and so on. But I kind of learned the ropes and maybe got by a bit with my so-called charismatic personality. And then over several months, transitioned eventually to a regional press assistant 
position. And that was only really in the last sort of month before the election. And we know how the election unfolded, of course. What advice do you have for, let's say, Gen Z who are in college right now who think, oh, you know what? This peace building thing sounds, conflict mitigation sounds exciting, sounds really interesting. What would you tell them to be studying now, Hmm. majoring in, that would enhance their chances of maybe getting an internship at a place like Mercy Corps? Mm -hmm. I think that there are a number of different paths I think that what has served me well is having a significant amount of knowledge on an important subject and one that is not sort of an area that everyone has developed expertise in. So the interest-based negotiation mediation, that is a a very important component of of peacebuilding work. And there's sort of a, a rich body of work supporting it, but building the skills to do that work well, but perhaps more importantly, teach those skills and concepts requires a lot of effort. And so I would recommend reading books like Getting to Yes and Beyond Machiavelli and understanding the joint problem-solving approach to negotiation and the seven elements of negotiation. Because I think that then when you approach an agency like Mercy Corps, you, you bring something that's a bit unique and that should be in high demand, similar to other peace building agencies like Search for Common Ground or what have you. I would say that it's also important to understand sort of how agencies like Mercy Corps work. So what is the role of international NGOs in in the world of peace building and humanitarian relief and development? How do we get our funding? How do grants work? How do we work with other organizations? Who are the other actors, whether it's the United Nations or sovereign governments uh, or community-based organizations? Just reading a little about that constellation of actors and how humanitarian assistance is delivered, how peace building programs are implemented. And I would also say reading a bit about the evidence of what works and what doesn't work. So Mercy Corps, of course, has debunked some of the conventional wisdom about what tends to work to address conflict. So understanding, for example, that one of the reasons people participate in in violence or join violent extremist groups is because they are angry, because they feel marginalized or are upset about corruption or have been abused by security forces or feel like their needs aren't being met or lack social belonging, not just because they lack employment or not just because they might be poor. And just kind of learning about how conflict interacts with other systems, right? How there are governance drivers of conflict or social drivers of conflict, ecological drivers of conflict when people are fighting over land and water, or economic drivers of conflict when people feel like they don't have opportunities or that there's dramatic inequality. So I think reading and and asking good questions and, and engaging in conversations and ideally finding an opportunity to learn from practical experience, on-the-ground experience. Of course, that's easier said than done. But if you can find an opportunity where you're able to participate in the implementation of a peace-building program, even if it's in the United States, if you're not able to, to travel, there are lots of efforts in the U.S. to bring different communities together um, or prevent tensions from escalating or prevent uh, violent conflict from emerging. So it sounds to me like you're saying it's less important what your major is, and it's more important that you learn to be an effective writer. 
and that you demonstrate through your own kind of extracurricular activities and readings that this is something that you feel passionately about. So if you happen to go to a school that doesn't offer this type of coursework, you can still be supplementing your education in your own time. Absolutely. I I think that regardless of what you major in, you have an opportunity to pursue this line of work. And there are so many resources available to people today that didn't used to be available so that you can enhance your own learning as, as you're saying. So whether that's massive online open enrollment courses, MOOCs, that you can take, or whether it's joining free webinars that uh, Mercy Corps or Search for Common Ground or other peacebuilding agencies, mediators beyond borders are, are sharing with the broader community. I think that there are opportunities to learn and then demonstrate that knowledge so that you are an attractive candidate to agencies that do this type of work. So before we wrap up, just one final question, and that is, what do you wish you had known in college that you know now that if you could go back in time, what do you think you you wish you could have told the younger Joe about life, about the working world? So I'll tweak that question slightly only because I think there were things that I did do that were really useful. And then I'll share something that I wish I had done that that I didn't do. So the one thing that I did do in college that I would advise anyone who's listening to do is to think about learning in college as not restricted to the classroom. There were so many great opportunities at Northwestern to learn from speakers who came to campus. I remember John McCain and Russ Feingold coming and talking about campaign finance reform. As the leader of different student groups, I was able to bring together speakers to, for example, talk about the North Korea, which right, remember now it's 2018 and, and we're all focused on North Korean uh, development of nuclear weapons and trying to reduce the risks of an escalation of tensions and hopefully promote um, a peaceful resolution to that conflict. But even then in 2003, it was a very hot topic and bringing together different groups and speakers to campus to talk about that issue was was an opportunity to learn. And there on any college campus, it's it's a it's a hotbed of activity and speakers and events. And and I think that I would encourage listeners to not only focus on getting good grades, which is important, though not, I think, decisive in, in your future success, but to just pursue things that you wouldn't otherwise do. So one, um, I had a great experience after sort of getting out of my system, a spring break in Acapulco um, with a fair amount of alcohol consumption. On uh, my spring break, my senior year was an alternative spring break, which was a which was a volunteer week at the Gay Men's Health Crisis in New York, um, which was an, an opportunity to learn more about HIV AIDS and, and prevention activities. And so I, I think that's important. What I didn't do that I would do if I were to go to college again is a better um, study abroad experience. So I felt like, I mean, this is something I'm sure many listeners experience, FOMO, fear of missing out. And I I loved college so much. And I feared that if I studied abroad for too long, that I would miss what was happening on campus. And so Northwestern worked on the trimester system. And I spent 10 weeks 
my winter semester in Edinburgh, which was a great experience, largely because I met one of my best friends who went to a Tufts University, and he is now my co-founder of the Super Decathlon for One America and a lifelong friend. But Edinburgh, Scotland was, it, it was great because I hadn't spent much time outside the US before, but it wasn't as immersive. It wasn't as sort of eye-opening experience as it might have been given the similarities between sort of British culture and American culture. And it was only 10 weeks and I didn't have an opportunity to learn a new language. And part of what has been very valuable in my Mercy Corps peace building work has been speaking Spanish. And I had to spend, not had to, but I chose to spend four months prior to graduate school in Argentina, primarily so I could learn Spanish and become at least somewhat proficient. And then over time, I've had these opportunities where I've increased my Spanish proficiency. But if I were to do it again, I would spend, I would have spent one semester in like South America and one semester in Spain. And that way I would have had these two great experiences and I would have learned Spanish and I would have really immersed myself in these different cultures. And while I surely would have missed something at Northwestern during that year, I still had three great years, three other great years during college to enjoy what was happening in terms of campus life. And I would have had this one great year of study abroad, but no regrets. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.